Fill in the Details, a podcast devoted to exploring the way philosophical wisdom and insights fill in the details of my favorite books, films, and works of art, provoking thoughtful discussion and meaning-making in the everyday life routine. So, I've been absent for a while. (laughs) It's been a really long summer. Somehow there's simultaneously nothing at all happening and somehow too much happening. It's been pretty weird. Uh, I fully recognize that I still have two episodes to work on, and yet here I am crazily adding another series to it all, but there's reasons for that. Uh, I will be coming back to season one and looking at that whole series and the finale of Point Counterpoint. Now that we're in a new semester at school, my course is now kind of resting entirely on that text because of the changes with teaching online. Uh, There's still a lot of good content to pull from, so I'll be dropping that final episode live for my current students. So I'm hoping that it'll be a good solid way to end the semester with them. Uh, It's such a great textual moment and I'm really excited to share it with them. I'm still thinking it'll be a longer episode too. I'm going to try and get some guests on to discuss it with me and waiting for it will allow my husband to go back and reread it like he keeps telling me he's going to do so that there's a little bit of extra time for him to do that. As for series two, uh, honestly in the moment of history that we're in right now, Uh, With me talking about Beloved and the historically black experience and the meaning of it in the literature, uh, in the midst of the protests, Black Lives Matter, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, everything else since, uh, I've just not really gotten to a place where I feel like I'm the right person to speak on it. I kept waiting for that moment to happen all summer where it would make sense for my voice to kind of now come in. But that isn't really here yet. Um, I asked the question in the penultimate episode about who has the right to really tell whose story. Obviously, Toni Morrison tells the story of Seed, who's a fictional representation of a real woman named uh, Margaret Garner, who committed the same kind of act of infanticide as a result of being a captured runaway slave. And while Toni Morrison was not herself a slave, like I've said before, her connection as a black woman in the Americas is heavily indebted to that experience. And she obviously has significantly more right to tell that story than I do. So here I am, trying to give some attestation, and honestly, given the contingencies of our time, I've just found myself really unable and honestly unwilling to speak any further to it. I do intend at some point to kind of go back and finish that series, but I'm not really sure what form that will take. And honestly, I kind of think the quietness of my voice and the lack of that episode serves as even more of an important physical reminder of my own need to step back and simply just listen and let the voices who should speak do so. I honestly just might even leave that episode unfinished. Uh, The story of slavery in the Americas is still tragically unfinished also. We don't have slaves in the sense... But yet, here we are in California, in recent days, and the fires and everything still serves as this kind of stark reminder of that forced unpaid labor that is still in the American prison system, and how it's overwhelmingly populated by people of color and minority populations who have just fewer resources for things like legal counsel that can represent them, um, beyond, you know, the overtaxed and underfunded public defense system, uh, the economic disadvantages of posting things like bail, and the way that inordinately impacts those same exact communities. So here we are, on fire to a degree that we generally don't see in the state, Uh, and it's really even up and down our coast now, actually, and those fighting uh, in that along the career firefighters are those who get paid less than minimum wage for their risk. 
and also cannot use that experience for any meaningful employment gain after they've served their sentences and have been absolved of their public debt. Luckily, there's been a lot of recent legislation and discussion regarding this kind of idea. Um, the hope that people who have gone through the prison system and have paid their time can then benefit from all the experience and the skills that they've used that have positively impacting capabilities for their own communities. But things like this and historical events, uh, th there's still plenty of work to do to rectify the social ills of an institution that has literally been the backbone of this country that has been built. It really does bring new meaning to the phrase, although it's falsely attributed to Sir Isaac Newton about standing on the shoulders of giants. So maybe it is kind of fitting that I move on to another territory, but without forgetting where I've been. Uh, and the importance of the moment shaping it. This will be a little bit more of like a fun short series that focuses on just a few of the things that I've taught to my high school audience that hasn't been surprisingly not depressing and despairing and or gravely serious in content. Uh, it's a fun little piece too. When I was first designing the curriculum for my philosophy and literature course a few years ago, I was looking for something that would start uh, a book that would be easy enough for them to understand, something that we could fast get through, a quick read without too much complexity going on, something that they would get right off the bat what I wanted them to get out of it, uh, but would play to some of the metaphysical themes that are really kind of early philosophy, uh, something to kind of wet their feet on some of those early ideas, the ancient philosophers and things like that. So looking at things like space and time, and when I first chose Out of the Silent Planet by C.S. Lewis to be this book, I'll be honest, I hadn't even read it yet. Uh, I knew very little about it other than uh, other things that I've read by Lewis, like the Chronicles of Narnia, the Screwtape Letters, and Mere Christianity. But I really had zero idea what would be found in this particular space trilogy. It became such a cool, pleasant surprise, and almost like it was a faded destiny, that it was perfectly the right place to begin with my class. Uh, much of the main character's experience in the book, at least I hope, mirrors what my students' experience comes to be in philosophy through my course, and much of this is indebted to the movement not unlike Plato's Allegory of the Cave, which I talked about in length in episode zero of this podcast. So for the next four episodes, I'm really excited to take you on that metaphysical ride through planetary travel. It's going to be weird, because it's really kind of hard to talk about C.S. Lewis without first talking about J.R.R. Tolkien in this as well. And honestly, probably going to end up spending a lot more of today talking about Tolkien and some of the things that he did. And then obviously I'll get to C.S. Lewis as we go on through the series. But that's not just because they were colleagues and friends that ran in a really important social circle and professional circle uh, called the Inklings. Which, by the way, how cool is that? Uh... We are ever connected by the internet these days, and yet it still seems really difficult, unless you're, like, already famous, that you find these really awesome circles of professionals that have the same career and intellectual interests that aren't forced by some kind of work situation, but you can go drink in basements of pubs while you share your writing. It's such a cool circumstance, and it seems like that was really prevalent for a lot of these writers in post-World War One and post-World War II, uh, but somehow they seem kind of less of a thing now. Don't get me wrong, I'm definitely not jealous of their time. Many of these writers were active in the wars, and Tolkien and Lewis both served in some capacity in World War One. Interestingly, they left the experience with really different perspectives. Lewis, who was raised kind of moderately Christian as a child, uh, had already started to really question religion after his mom had died. 
And then he became a self-avowed atheist after his war experience pretty much confirmed for him a lack of redeeming God. Tolkien, though, became an even more devout Catholic. So early in their friendship, as part of this really kind of cool writing circle, they became really good friends, and it was eventually Tolkien who Lewis credits with his conversion and embracing back to religion, which becomes heavily foundational in a lot of his famous works. So they often shared their works with each other in this process of creation, and everybody would bring their stuff and share it around the group. Um, they would discuss the ideas of mythos and fantasy and world building, um, and they both really excelled as students and as educators in these areas. Um, story has it that Lewis loved the stories of Middle-earth and Tolkien and all of his stuff, uh, but it wasn't really super uh, reciprocated because Tolkien wasn't really super up on Narnia in the same way. He saw Narnia as something that was a little bit too contingent upon the real world, whatever, you know, real in scare quotes is, and that there needed to be a little bit more of a stark division between the new world of his creation and the fantasy and that of its own time. So he wanted those to be their own entity. To be fair, though, Tolkien was kind of a massive elitist of fantasy. Not everyone has time, Tolkien, to create nine fully functioning languages with their own grammatical structures, and there aren't just ciphers of English. He's maybe asking a bit much of Lewis here, who was also really just aiming to write stories for children. Even still, though, the influence is really apparent. In fact, Tolkien's use of fantasy was something he justified, and a sword he took up against the literary elite who claimed fantasy is just simple children's stories which anyone who's read Lord of the Rings knows that they're really not. In his essay on fairy stories, Tolkien goes to bat, really, for the genre and what it has to offer us. But he does so begin beginning to distinguish fantasy as a specific genre of, of literature, uh, as he claims it is really a genre best left to words. He argues that it's not really something that can be properly done by theater, which I kind of find hilarious, given that you've got so many of his things being turned into these fictional films and television and everything like that. You had not just the movies of recent times, but also The Hobbit, I think, was first uh, an animated film. So you've got lots of examples where fantasy, you know, because of Tolkien, fantasies actually become really apparent in our media. Uh, you've got books that have been made, movies or television series, everything from Harry Potter to Game of Thrones. Although, to be fair, maybe the latter was best left to text. Oh, those last seasons. And eight. Oh. Honestly, eight might actually reaffirm Tolkien's ruling on this here. It was just so sadly awful. So anyway, Tolkien justifies fantasy for what it can offer us. Namely, uh, three things he, he names recovery, escape, and consolation. Recovery, for him, is the act of making something known strange so that it can be recovered or recontextualized or re-understood in a new way. So often we get indebted to pattern and routine to the point that much of what we see is habitual and so it's nearly unconscious. I mean, when was the last time you actually looked at the back of your hand, as the old adage you know so well? Like, actually looked. They're always there. They're part of you. You use them. It's not even a thing. 
And it doesn't have to be a hand here. It could be anything that you're constantly kind of bombarded with. Any particular object that stays fixed in a space around you in your house. Something that you pass all the time. Something you know is there, but it does, you don't really actually see it in any kind of meaningful or attentive, conscious way. So Tolkien says, Making something in some way strange brings new attention to an old issue that you're forced to really contend with it for the first conscious time again. The idea is that common human themes inevitably run through fantasy stories. Things like, you know, you've got dragons and unicorns and other fictional beings. But those themes, because they're presented to us in new world and a new law and new norms through the fantasy, we get to reinterpret those old thematic ideas about humanity as something that seems, at least on the surface, different. But then we all eventually come to recognize that these have been familiar themes for us all along. Escape is exactly what it sounds like. Going off into a new world to escape the trivial, mundane, hectic, anxious world that is our day-to-day -day routine. Tolkien has this whole very interesting internal argument here regarding the typical contempt for fantasy that's met with a specific regard to this idea of escape. That it is an escape from what is real for people who are too weak or too stupid to deal with quote-unquote real life. You have to remember that deep environmentalism is something that runs through Tolkien's works, though, and recognize that escape for him also means a return to kind of that archaic sense of that uh, humans being deeply connected to the natural world, and that dehumanizing scientific and economic progress that thrust man out into the world that was neither real nor his, uh, but the machines. Escape, then, is not really escape from, but an escape to. Uh, a homecoming, in a sense, and expressing a desire to reimagine ourselves as something more deeply embedded in an experience more real than the false world of our current kind of dehumanizing reality. He eventually extends this to the, the highest of escapes, the escape of death, which you'll see many of examples uh, if you think about all of the return and back again escapes from death that happen in the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, death then is kind of this inevitable, finable stage of our life and our existence. Um, but that's the thing we march toward, and fantasy gives us kind of a momentary escape from that march and some level of hope, which leads us to the next thing. Consolation is where he goes to from here, and he truly believes that fantasy ought always to give some kind of restorative note. In Middle-earth, it's the success of Frodo and Sam in destroying the ring, <laughs> sorry spoilers, <laughs> thus restoring Middle-earth. Uh, in Star Wars, and yeah, Star Wars is a fantasy, it's not really sci-fi. It's the defeating of the Sith, literally any time it's about defeating a Sith Lord, and restoring balance to the Force. For Game of Thrones, it's restoring the kingdom under benevolent, respectful rule. For Harry Potter, it's defeating the Dark Lord and restoring the working and respectful relationship that should exist between the magical and muggle worlds. Tolkien coins a term for the experience of up and downs that happen in fantasy works, catastrophe. You meaning good, and catastrophe making it an interesting little paradox. This is why you always see those crazy characters going to die edge of chaos moments. See the Long Night, uh, the battles with Voldemort, the battle in Gondor, and the conflict for control in Narnia in the seventh book of the series called The Last Battle. Imminent destruction is upon us. Everything is dark. It looks like the end. People might even die. Bad things will happen. But there's always something that shines in the darkness. Now, I don't want to confuse catastrophe with the plot device Deus Ex Machina. It's really not the same thing. 
Deus Ex Machina is when the main character's death is very obviously coming and something swoops in and whisks him away. It's that scene in Toy Story 3 that you know without me even describing it right now, where all the characters are heading towards the fire and you're choking back all your tears so that your friends don't laugh at you for crying over some stupid toys, only for them to be whisked away by the claw. Don't lie, you know you were totally crying there. Eucatastrophe, though, really isn't the same thing. Very realistically, sometimes the characters really do die. Bad things really do happen. Evil does seem to gain the upper hand. The tale continues, though, and there is an epiphany that good always continues to fight. Someone always picks up the sword. As Tolkien says in the essay, It is the mark of a good fairy story of the higher or more complete kind. That however wild its events, however fantastic or terrible the adventures, it can give to child or man that hears it when the turn comes, a catch of the breath, a beat of lifting of the heart, near to or indeed accompanied by tears, as keen as that given by any form of literary art and having a peculiar quality. Even modern fairy stories can produce this effect sometimes. It is not an easy thing to do. It depends on the whole story, which is the setting of the turn, and yet it reflects a glory backwards. It is that good through the destruction that teaches us to have hope, to continue to push even in the bleakest of moments because the story never really ends. It's an endearing way to view Tolkien's war experience. It's what he took away from it that differed so heavily from the experience of many of his peers. The story for him did not end at the war. He came home, and he realized his own role in perpetuating of the good. Of course, there's religious sense to the concept here, that hope, um, but it can grab a secular audience in the same way, because for whatever reason, we find a, a way to get through it. In today's world, this might offer us something desperately needed. When we see death and destruction and climate change and mass migration and mass extinction and pandemic and all of this, and do I need to go on here? Uh, it can very quickly escalate on us, and it weighs on us to the point of almost hopelessness. This is a good reason why fantasies hearken us back to a sense of childlikeness. We desperately want that nostalgia to hold on to. We have something meaningful to learn here, I think, from Tolkien's conception. I've purposely kind of left out using Out of the Silent Planet as an example for this discussion so far, although I hope you'll see that this will track uh, these ideas as we go through it. It, it certainly does fit the same description, though maybe a little bit more loosely because it does see a little bit more of that blurred sense of Tolkien's definition of fantasy. As I said, Lewis and Tolkien disagreed about the level of separation that was necessary for a creative work to constitute the name quote-unquote fantasy. Out of the Silent Planet follows the story of a man named Ransom, who's a university professor of philology which is the study of languages and often those that we would consider dead languages or languages of dead cultures. Uh, Ransom at the beginning of the work is on a walking tour, which who does that? <laughs> I mean, ain't nobody got time for that now. But anyway, he seems fairly disconnected from any kind of contingency. There's no family that's looking for him. No one's really worried about him. He seems pretty disconnected in that way. It's summer holidays. So there's really not anything work-related that he's responsible for. It's just him in the middle of the British countryside walking. <laughs> now, Lewis plays to that familiar trope of the stuck-up intellectual. 
You get the quick sense that Ransom is an elitist, an egocentric, and condescending one, and he's not super likable right away. So when his walking tour gets interrupted by a woman who's hysterically begging him to help her find her son who hasn't even returned for the night, you feel this massive inconvenience, the disturbances that this causes him, although his ethical sensibilities compel him to help. But his annoyance about it kind of still feels off. He continues on his walk with his responsibilities in mind, kind of pouting about it, until he stops at a house that's surrounded by shrubbery. He hears a commotion on the other side of the wall, and he goes on to investigate, inserting himself into the situation, which becomes probably his biggest mistake. The boy, the one that the woman was looking for earlier, is released, and Ransom is questioned about why he's there. What is, what is this act of intrusion? We find out that the man he's currently engaging in conversation with is an old-school colleague of his named Devin? Divine? Devin? I'm going with Devin because Divine just sounds kind of strange. Who also introduces Ransom to a squat older man named Weston, both of whom claim to be scientists working on some kind of revolutionary thing of importance. Ransom shows his hand by telling them that he's not really beholden to anything, that he's basically out there alone, that his name is a kind of a misnomer, and that no one's really actually looking for him, and no one's going to drop him any ransom, and magically disappears, and they seize that opportunity. <laughs> Boom! He gets knocked out by something that they've been drugging him with, and he recounts this really interesting dream of being in a garden, of um, climbing some wall and then sitting on it, and then having his one leg on the light side and his other leg on the opposite side and his leg feeling dark, which is actually kind of an interesting kind of synesthetic way to describe the feeling of heavy, dark. And hearing voices going on on the other side of the wall of people he can't see. And then he's awakened and he's in this weird environment. And this is where things really start to get interesting. Uh, when he comes to from a second blow... He's in some kind of vessel of sorts, and he starts to have these really interesting bodily experiences that he describes as. Although he had been conscious of no unusual muscular effort, he found himself leaping from the bed with an energy which brought his head into sharp contact with the skylight and flung him down again in a heap on the floor. He found himself on the other side against the wall, the wall that ought to have sloped outward like the side of a wheelbarrow according to his previous reconnaissance, but it didn't. He felt it, and he looked at it. It was unmistakably at right angles to the floor. More cautiously this time, he rose again to his feet. He felt an extraordinary lightness of body. It was with difficulty that he kept his feet on the floor. For the first time, a suspicion that he might be dead and already in the ghost life crossed his mind. He was trembling, but a hundred mental habits forbade him to consider this possibility. Instead, he explored his prison. The result was beyond doubt. All the walls looked as if they sloped outward so as to make the room wider at the ceiling than it was at the floor, but each wall as you stood beside it turned out to be perfectly perpendicular, not only to sight, but to touch also if one stooped down and examined with one's fingers the angle between it and the floor. The same examination revealed two other curious facts. The room was walled and floored with metal, and was in a state of continuous faint vibration, a silent vibration with a strangely lifelike and unmechanical quality about it. But if a vibration was silent, there was plenty of noise going on, a series of musical raps or percussions at quite irregular intervals which seemed to come from the ceiling. 
It was as if the metal chamber in which he found himself was being bombarded with small, tinkling missiles. Ransom was now, by now, thoroughly frightened, not with that prosaic fright that a man suffers in a war, but with a heady, bounding kind of fear that was hardly distinguishable from his general excitement. He was poised on a sort of emotional watershed from which he felt he might at any moment pass into delirious terror or into an ecstasy of joy. He knew now that he was not in a house, but in some moving vessel. It was clearly not a submarine, and the infinitesimal quivering of the metal did not suggest the motion of any wheeled vehicle. A ship, then, he supposed, or some kind of airship. But there was an oddity in all his sensations for which neither supposition accounted. Puzzled, he sat down again on the bed and stared at the portentous moon. Now, from a place in the future, we know all about the experience of space and space travel and anti-gravity and the sounds and all of that. We've watched Liftoff, we've seen the movies about it, the documentaries, the space station, all of that. And it's not that space doesn't offer us still significantly plenty of unknowns. It's still pretty scary stuff. But you have to remember that Lewis is publishing this in 1938, and surprisingly, interestingly accurate descriptions happening. Ransom does not know at this point that he is in space or anything like that, but in the process of investigating it leads him from a feeling of recognition of the scene and things that are familiar, walls, bed, floor, etc., to a strange realization that what he's seeing isn't really what's there. What he sees as a space that looks as if the walls slope outward to a wider ceiling is deceiving. That he feels light and bouncy and unlike he feels in any kind of normal circumstance. This leads him to kind of a spiraling sense of impending doom. As if he himself is a ghost and already dead. Things he doesn't really want to entertain, so he kind of forces those thoughts back. But something is still suspiciously, constantly thrusting itself upon him. But what is more interesting about this description is the mix of fear and excitement, a feeling that he really can't name or distinguish from one or the other alone. What he has done is let himself into some kind of Socratic way toward aporia, the experience of puzzlement and wonder that for us in English rests in this juxtaposition between the positive emotion of excitement and the negative one of fear, which all rests in our impending relationship with the unknown as it becomes something known. The older we get, the more we experience, and the less immediately do we experience this emotion. Because we have a lot more analogous experiences to draw from, we very quickly liken an experience that we're having that might be unknown in quality to those that we have known language for. We say things like, oh, this, this it's kind of like this, or some similar method of comparison. In Plato's dialogue, Mino, his character Socrates actually describes and demonstrates the process of his Socratic method of question as it leads his interlocutor to a moment of aporia. At first, he did not know what he thought he knew, and he does not even know even now, but at any rate, he thought he knew then, and confidently answered as though he knew, and was aware of no difficulty, whereas now he feels the difficulty he is in, and besides not knowing, does not think he knows, we have certainly given him some assistance, it would seem, towards finding out the truth of the matter, for now he will push on in the search gladly, as lacking knowledge, whereas 
there then he would have been only too ready to suppose he was right, having been reduced to the perplexity of realizing that he did not know he will go on and discover something. I usually tell the story here about my first time at Six Flags when I was probably, I think, about a sophomore in high school or something like that. And this was really my first real experience of a real roller coaster for the first time. Now, I'd been to Knott's Berry Farm before and had been on Montezuma's Revenge, which in essence is just a loop that goes straight out and then returns back through the loop again, and that's pretty much it. I guess, I mean, okay, fine, it's a real roller coaster, but it's basically for me, I was staring at the floor the whole time anyway, so I didn't really actually experience any of that. So we go to Six Flags, and my high school boyfriend at the time decides that our first stop has to be Goliath, <laughs> which at that time, because I'm, you know, now old, it, it was pretty new then. Um, but it was something like a 45-minute wait. It's a long, windy line that, you know, you're staring up at the roller coaster the entire time you're in the line. So by the time we're getting into it, I'm watching this thing go by the first time and then the 16th time and then the 30th time. And I'm starting to get pretty anxious. It's weird because you can see it. You know what it's going to do. Intellectually, you understand the safety of it all and the fact that this thing gets tested multiple times a day constantly. But it's not really until we got to the front of the line and we're sitting in the first car. Because, of course, you know, we had to sit in the first <laughs> the first car. My boyfriend at the time wasn't going to give me up on that one. Uh, but with nothing else in front of us, it's just air and track. All right, we're doing this. <laughs> okay. And I'm not really afraid of heights or anything. But if you know, you you know, <laughs> Goliath is, oh god, the climb. The climb to that first drop feels like it's forever long, like straight 20 minutes of a ride. Uh, it's a slow and painful creep to that first drop. You see it, you feel it, and it takes forever. And I remind you, I'm not afraid of heights. But I'm bawling by about halfway up this up this climb because the anticipation is just maddening and you could feel it and I'm starting to feel super terrible for the guy that's right behind me in the car behind me because my tears are just like streaming backwards off my face in that direction. And it's that anticipation, that known meaning of the unknown about to meet the known again and that experience of aporia, that puzzlement and wonder, that fear and excitement that's all boiled up in one moment that accompanies this kind of unique thing for the first experience. Eventually, you know, we, when the unknown becomes the known, we pick whatever one of the emotions we decide to eventually be. And lucky for me, you know, I like roller coasters and that ride's pretty awesome. And, you know, once you get past that first drop and it's the, you know, I'm losing consciousness and blacking out in the G-force that go around those crazy, like, tight turns. But yeah... The older we get and the more we think we know about experience, the less likely we are to find aporia. And if we're especially married to kind of our routine ways and habits, the less chance we really give ourselves to experience something in that way, unless we really seek it out. And even then, some people look to interpret so immediately that any chance of aporia escapes. Here's the problem with that, though. Aporia is the required moment of learning. Without it, learning doesn't really happen, or at least not as well. We looked at Allegory of the Cave back in Episode 0 also. It stands here as well. At this moment, Ransom has been the seasoned veteran in the cave, really good at predicting the shadows on the wall, a quote-unquote prestigious intellect. 
Here he's been removed from his spot, forced to turn around and see something in a new light. It is, in a lot of ways, Tolkien's recovery. The taking of the known and making it unrecognizably an unknown, forcing something of a moment of a Perea in our act of reading a fantasy in order that we reconsider our old, really already held conceptions of reality. Otherwise, we might not think about things as we hold truths at any point, and you get into the static habitual patterns of thinking, and we know how dangerous that can be. We see that stubborn kind of pattern all the time. So really, the exercise of making the old and known new and strange again is something we shouldn't just reserve for fantasy. It's something we should train ourselves to do with our preconceived and accepted ideologies always. And what's great about Ransom, and I think this will ring true about the whole book, is that despite coming off as this haughty intellectual early on, that aspect of him gets kicked away pretty quickly, and he's not super deterred from the learning process. He's set in his ways, as any human tends to be, but he seems at least to meet the moment, over and over again. Here, he continues to think, to investigate, to entertain the thought of something different than he normal, normally would. He, of course, comes to recognize that the moon he's seeing in the window isn't actually the moon, it's Earth. Uh, and he doesn't get really dismissive or even really aim to fully explain what's going on. He kind of just lets it be and feels it without the need to give it an immediate linguistic comparison. Like the prisoner in Plato's cave, he turns around and lets his eyes and elect adjust to account for a deeper information and understanding. He sees the experience, the consequences, and internalizes to introduce a t new total body of evidence. He, like the prisoners in the cave, certainly experiences that painful moment of aporia, that turn, as I call it in allegory, uh, the pain and dazzle, and pushes on instead of sitting back down and embracing the shadows on the wall, only to later feel the nagging anxiety of what Kierkegaard will later come to call the demonic. Let us hope we meet our own moments of puzzlement with the same kind of openness, despite our tendency to over-explain, rationalize, and compartmentalize. It feels pretty good to be back. Uh, tune in later this week when I'll drop the next episode, uh, where we'll discuss a little bit more of Christ uh, the Christian ideology that comes from Lewis's influence. Uh, and we'll kind of attach that to some of the situations that are happening in Out of the Silent Planet and later parts of the book. Uh, there's some interesting views of memory and a little bit of a return to Paul Recur, who we got some introduction to in the early episodes of Season 2. For questions, ideas, for what you'd like to hear in these podcasts, for some feedback, hit up fillinthedetails at gmail.com. As always, I'm Stacey Cabrera, and you've been listening to Fill in the Details. <laughs>